Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome back. This is the final podcast in the series, Moses and the Plagues. Now, today, before we get started on the final plagues, let's review a few of the key points from the last podcast. That was Moses and the Plagues Part 2. For me, one of the most thought-provoking lessons was the fact that not all miracles are performed by the power of God. By permission of God, the devil can duplicate the work of God. And we saw this in the duplication of the first two plagues. And also recall when Pharaoh's magicians were able to turn their staff into a serpent, just like Moses did. But we also learned when we looked into the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, it says that, quote, they're not going to get very far because as in the case of those men, referring to the magicians, their folly will be clear to everyone. So in other words, just like the magicians in the time of Moses, if a miracle is not from God, it will soon become obvious. And the fact that this New Testament passage refers to the magicians Janus and Jambres, it also indicates that the power these men had was not sleight of hand, but it really was the power from the devil. I found that really thought-provoking. Also, we learned some very interesting background on Bithia. Remember, she was the Pharaoh's daughter who drew Moses out of the Nile River and then raised him as her own son. According to the Jewish Midrash, and remember, the Midrash is the ancient interpretation of scripture, she converted to Judaism and left Egypt with Moses and the others. Today's lesson, we'll focus on the remaining plagues, and we're going to look specifically at God's purpose in sending the plagues. That's really what I want you to focus on, God's purpose. We covered the first three plagues in the last podcast, but I want to dig into the significance of these plagues for the Egyptian people. The first plague that affected the water in Egypt, remember, and it turned it to blood. Now, this was an attack on the Egyptian god Happy, H-A-P-I. And this is the god that they believed controlled the Nile. Egyptians also believed the Nile was the very bloodstream. I think that's just a great visual. The very bloodstream, and then it turns to blood. The very bloodstream of one of their greatest gods, Osiris. You're going to hear about this god a lot today. Osiris was the son of the god of earth and sky. Osiris was the god of all life and afterlife. So this first plague demonstrated the powerlessness of both Happy, who controlled the Nile, 
and Osiris, the god of life and the afterlife. That's a pretty powerful way to start. Then we had plague number two. Now, this was the plague of frogs described in Exodus chapter 7, starting at verse 25, all the way through 8, 11. So seven days after the first plague, Moses warns that frogs are going to swarm over the whole country from the rivers all the way to the bedrooms of the palace. Now, normally, the sound of croaking frogs would have been welcomed. It would signal that the annual routine flooding that was caused by seasonally heavy rainfall in the Ethiopian highlands was done. And then the rich silt, which made that land so incredibly fertile, it would symbolize it had been deposited and now farmers could begin their work. Frogs symbolized fertility and therefore life. So in essence, the presence of frogs was normally a good thing because hallelujah, it meant their annual flooding was done. Now, the Egyptians worshipped the goddess Heket, H-E-Q-E-T. She has a human body, but the head of a frog. Yeah, that's attractive. And they believe she helped women in childbirth. And they actually called Heket the goddess of birth. So with both of the first two plagues, we know the Pharaoh's magicians used their, quote, secret arts to duplicate what Moses and Aaron did. But here's what's interesting. Yeah, they could duplicate it, but they were powerless to undo their work or combat the plagues. In other words, <laughs> they made it worse. They could duplicate it, and they did, but they couldn't stop it. The plague of frogs ends when Moses prays to God. But the Bible tells us the frogs don't vanish. Rather, they die in place. Quote, in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and the land stink. The problem morphed from dealing with living frogs to dealing with dead, decaying frog bodies. Millions of stinky, decaying little froggies. Plague three. Now, plague number three is the gnats. Because as the dead frogs decayed, God sends this third plague. And as we talked about last time, the gnats are described in various translations all nasty, either lice, sand fleas, or mosquitoes. Yes. So we'll call it gnats. The gnats are so numerous, it seemed every speck of dust in Egypt had turned into a tiny bug. Ooh, that's a powerful visual, isn't it? This plague strikes Geb, G-E-B, the god of the earth, and the father of Osiris. As the god of the earth, Geb was thought to handle the crops growing out of the earth. So when Aaron stretched out his hand and, quote, struck the dust of the earth with his staff and the gnats rose from the ground instead of the healthy crops, this was looking really bad for that god, Geb. Now we'll come to the fourth plague. This is described 
starting in Exodus 8 at verse 17. This is called the plague of swarms. And the literal Hebrew doesn't specify what actually swarmed. Modern translations indicate it was either beetles or flies. Now, I know how I feel if I have just a few flies in the house. Honestly, I become incensed and I go on like this murderous rampage. Imagine a plague of flies or beetles. Interestingly, the first three plagues affect Egypt universally. But the fourth plague only affects Egyptians. It stops at the border to the land where the Hebrews lived. The Egyptian god, Kepri, K-H-E-P-R-I, is a sun god, maybe a subsidiary form of Amun-Ra, who's the primary god in Egyptian culture. Ra, we know, brings light into the world, they believed, and this lesser god, Kepri, rolled the sun across the sky in the Egyptian belief. Kepri is represented in hieroglyphics as a scarab beetle, and he's depicted in paintings as a man with the head of a scarab. I can actually picture this. Maybe you've seen this before, too. Now, the scarab beetle is a dung beetle. It works, lives, and lays its eggs in animal manure. So this swarm of flies or beetles, as some translations say, is a direct assault on Kepri, the god dung beetle. Plague five, pestilence. And the Bible tells us this particular plague specifically targeted livestock in the field. That's in Exodus chapter nine, verse three. The livestock owned by the Israelites, the Hebrews, was untouched, but all of the Egyptian horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks in the field died. Now, one type of animal inevitably caught in this pestilence was cattle. And many Egyptian gods were represented by animals, but the most revered of these was Apis, A-P-I-S, the bull god. A male ox. Apis was considered the intermediary between Osiris and humanity. The Egyptians worshipped ox, and now the very animal that they bowed down to and worshipped for centuries is stricken dead. The God of the Israelites demonstrated supremacy over Apis by striking down all the Egyptian livestock. So the Egyptians were helpless and once again reminded God was God. Exodus 9, 6 tells us, And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Can you imagine how you would feel at this point if all your animals suddenly dropped dead? But all the animals next door, the animals of the Hebrews, were still alive. Plague number six. This is disgusting. 
It's the plague of the boils. In this plague, Moses throws handfuls of soot. This is so interesting. Handfuls of soot from either a kiln or a furnace. And he throws these handsful of soot into the air. And it spreads through the air, the Bible tells us, and settled on animals and humans. Animals and humans. Creating, quote, hot, festering skin sores. Most likely black in color, just like the soot. The Egyptians were known for their over-the-top cleanliness. The kind of boil described in the Bible is one that is constantly erupting. And the Bible tells us they were covered from head to toe. They not only incurred pain from the boils, but the actual presence of the boils themselves made them ceremonially unclean. Now, their pagan priests were always so concerned about cleanliness that we know that they would change clothes and shave three times a day just so that they could be, quote, clean to perform ceremonies in front of their gods. So now because they're covered in boils, unable to worship their pagan gods. And for the first time, the Bible tells us now Pharaoh's magicians are afflicted by this plague. Egyptians credit the goddess Sekhmet, S-E-K-H-M-E-T, Sekhmet, with controlling plagues and providing healings. Ooh, well, this god is under attack and epically fails. The goddess who controls plagues and provides healing. Do you see where God's going with this? Plague seven, the hail and fire plague. So immediately before plague seven, God reiterates the point of all the plagues saying, I have let you live to show you my power and to make my name resound through all the earth. That's in Exodus chapter nine, verse 16. God also warns that with this next plague, every animal and person needs to be brought to a shelter because the heaviest hail they've ever seen is coming. And some Egyptians, the Bible tells us, actually believed God and found shelter for their animals, their workers, and their slaves. But those who did not heed the warning lost it all when Moses, quote, stretched out his staff towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire, such heavy hail as had never been seen in all the land of Egypt. Wow. The most hail and lightning that they'd ever seen beats down on everything growing in the fields and the Bible tells us, stripped every tree. The only place that did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Okay, a little contextual background. This storm occurred in February. The people had never seen hail come in February because this was not traditionally their stormy season. 
the Bible also tells us that this hail came out of a clear blue sky. Huh. Sounds like another time when God tried to warn the people about an impending weather disaster and most people ignored it. The Bible tells us the storm destroyed every human slave, animal, plant, and tree in a field, anything that didn't seek shelter everywhere in Egypt except Goshen, where the Israelites lived. God has now used the Nile River, the soil, the air, and the sky to bring destruction to Pharaoh's kingdom. The seventh plague of hail proves the powerlessness of the goddess in the sky and the mother of Osiris. This is a goddess called Nut. <laughs> I love that. N-U-T, Nut. Egyptians relied on Nut to prevent chaos from breaking out through the sky and engulfing the world. Oops. Epic fail. Plague eight, the locusts. Moses warns correctly that the locusts are going to destroy anything that wasn't destroyed by the previous plagues, which at this point I'm thinking, was there anything left? Apparently there was. So God brings the locusts in on the Bible tells us an east wind. And there were so many locusts, the land looked black. The locusts ate in the field everywhere in Egypt. It says nothing green was left, no tree, no plant in the field anywhere in Egypt. At Pharaoh's request, because he's just freaking out, Moses prays that God remove the locusts. And then it says God brought a very strong west wind and blew the locusts into the Red Sea. And of course, the Egyptian gods are silent and powerless, including the Egyptian god of grain called Neper. Now, he kind of got eaten up. <laughs> now, I'm not really familiar with locusts, so I did a little research. And I found that locusts have been feared and revered, kind of weird, throughout history. They're related to the grasshoppers. And they form swarms sometimes that can spread across regions, devouring crops and leaving serious agricultural damage. The swarms are typically in motion, if there is a swarm, and can cover huge distances. Some species can travel like 81 miles a day or more, and they can also stay in the air for long periods of time. And apparently they can take like nonstop trips across the Red Sea. In 1954, a swarm flew from Northwest Africa all the way to Great Britain. In 1988, they traveled from West Africa to the Caribbean, which is 3,100 miles, and they did that in 10 days. Gross. A desert locust, okay, this is mind-blowing. A desert locust swarm can be 460 square miles in size, and get this, pack between 40 and 80 million locusts in a half a square mile. So do the math. Each locust can eat its own weight. Okay, well, how much does a locust weigh? But a swarm can eat 
423 million pounds of plant every day. And just so you think, man, that doesn't happen today, since the beginning of this year, and you may not even know about this because of everything else that's been going on, but yeah, there's a locust swarm in Kenya, the worst that they've seen in 70 years. Yeah, there's that. Plague number nine. It's called the plague of darkness. For three days, it was so dark. The Bible tells us people could not see each other or where they were walking. Now think about that. So dark, you can't see the person in front of you. Remember, they don't have electricity. The Bible tells us the darkness was so thick, it could be felt. But the Israelites had light and the Egyptians were in darkness. And what an effect this must have been to be plunged into complete darkness. The Goshen, where God's people were, had light. Now, I have a map on my website, studentofthebible.com, to show you where Goshen is located relative to the Nile River and the rest of Egypt. It's located east of the Nile River and covers maybe an area of about 900 square miles. Now, maybe you've experienced driving in your car where there's a clear line of dark thunderclouds and then bright sunny skies, but I cannot imagine anything so dramatic as complete darkness and then miles away, absolute sunshine for three whole days. Now, this plague shows the complete ineptitude of their sun god, Amun-Ra. This is the greatest of the Egyptian gods. It's the sun. The Bible tells us that this ninth plague of darkness occurred without warning, which also points to the extraordinary and unusual nature of three days of darkness that prevented them even from leaving their homes. Okay, yes, many of us have been quarantined for longer than three days, but we're not plunged into complete darkness, right? And to contrast that with the fact that Israel had light in their dwellings and they were able to go about normal activity, again, that stresses the supernatural nature of this plague. This was not a sandstorm, and it wasn't an eclipse because it lasted three days. Theologically, thick darkness directly challenged the faithfulness of their sun god, Ra. Because Ra is counted on to provide warmth and sunshine, and such darkness even prevented daily worship of Ra. So they're like, Ra, I know you're mad at us, but we can't even go worship you they're stuck in their homes. Now, let's look at the New Testament for a couple of minutes and see what does it say about darkness? Well, in the Acts of the Apostles, in chapter 2, verse 20, we read of another terrible darkness that's going to come upon the earth at the end of the age. And it says, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord comes. Now, in the Bible, we've seen God use darkness of this magnitude a couple of times in punishment of those who don't follow him. The Bible says this darkness was 
so heavy, there wasn't even moon and stars visible. A frightening darkness. And imagine being Pharaoh, because he has no way of knowing if God is going to let this darkness remain or not. He doesn't know the darkness is going to end in three days. For all he knows, this darkness could last forever. Throughout the Bible, darkness is symbolic of those who are away from God. The Bible says that the worst darkness is darkness of the spirit, when our understanding of God is darkness, because Jesus is the light, and the darkness is the total absence of his light. John, in chapter 8, verse 12 in the New Testament, says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Bible talks about physical darkness and spiritual darkness, and both are bad. Possibly this overwhelming darkness that came on Egypt was both physical and spiritual. Exodus chapter 10, verse 23 no one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. The people of Israel in the land of Goshen once again were exempt from this plague. The darkness was a miracle from God. Now, before we get to the final plague, plague number 10, let's get back to what was the simple request that started this all? Do you even remember what it was? It was a request that God's people be allowed to go into the wilderness to pray for three days. Well, here's a question. Why didn't Moses just demand from the very beginning, look, just release us once and for all? Well, implied in this request is that you know, the Israelites are just going to go on a mini vacation and get some R&R, &R, and then we're going to head right back into bondage. So what good did that request serve? Well, some say because God already knew Pharaoh is not going to comply. Here's another thought, and I find this very thought-provoking. According to a messianic Jewish interpretation God had to show the Hebrew people that they gradually need to separate from the Egyptians. And this was not going to happen overnight. Think of that Stockholm Syndrome. Even though the Hebrews have been enslaved for the better part of 430 years, the Hebrews feel a comforting oneness with Egypt because this is the land where they were born and raised, and it's the only land they've known for 430 years. Yes, they hated their slavery, but they were also attached to this beautiful country, the sophisticated society that they were part of, even if they were second-class citizens. And I know what you're thinking. Well, it's not very beautiful anymore because of all the plagues that's pretty much taking care of this picturesque landscape. Exactly. 
God had to slowly free them, not only from the physical grip Egypt had on them, but the mental grip as well. Isn't it interesting, as I said before, that this process of the plagues was not just for the benefit of the Egyptians to show them God was God, but also as a process for the Hebrews to let them know they had to separate themselves from Egypt. God needs to have Israel all to himself so he can show them what proper worship is about. Now we come to plague number 10. This is called the death of the firstborn and it's described in Exodus chapter 11. And God brings this 10th and final plague to every Egyptian household, including Pharaoh. At midnight on the predicted day, God, quote, struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Exodus eleven seven, But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, the 10th plague is unusual for a number of reasons. First, the way that this 10th plague is presented in the Bible is unusual. The 10th plague, also called the plague of the firstborn, Well, it's actually hinted at from the very beginning of Exodus. Moses warned Pharaoh of this outcome from the start. Moses is told by God to tell Pharaoh, Israel is God's firstborn. Look this up. Way back in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 through 23, it says, quote, This is God talking to Moses. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. This plague also was not accompanied by the usual structure of the plagues that we've seen. The way the other plagues occurred in the Bible was first Moses would give a warning and then a description of the plague, and then the plague would occur, and then Pharaoh would request that the plague be lifted. But after the ninth plague, that plague of darkness, Pharaoh banishes Moses from his sight. So Moses gives no warning for this final plague. Rather, he just like announces, thus says the Lord, toward midnight, I will go forth among the Egyptians and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. That's not a lot of warning. Moses emphasized also the firstborn of the Israelites would not be touched. Quote, in order that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So, The Bible tells us at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night. 
And there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. What's interesting is that it seems that this plague was designed not only to bring the Egyptians to surrender, but first and foremost to affect the people of Israel. In the plague of the firstborn, the people of Israel are also put to the test. We know from the Bible that at midnight, the Lord passed over the houses of Israel because they're told to put blood on their mantles. And scripture is really brief about the plague itself because it really seems the main point is that this is the night the angel of the Lord will pass over the people of Israel. This is the night that will forever be remembered and celebrated as Passover. Now, just reflect for a moment on the fact that the applying of blood on the doorposts was not to mark the houses of the Israelites for God's eyes because, you know, he knows everything and he would know which homes belonged to his people. This act was for the sake of the Israelites themselves so they would realize their uniqueness as Israel, the Lord's firstborn. This is a quote from a Jewish perspective, and I really like this. Quote, God therefore struck down the Egyptian firstborn while he spared the Israelite firstborn because the sparing of the Israelite firstborn was not a matter of merit, but of grace. God owned them. Since he had spared their lives, he possessed them. The right of redeeming the firstborn was a constant reminder to the Israelites of all subsequent generations that the firstborn belonged to God and that this was due to the sparing of the firstborn at the Exodus. Thus, every time the first boy was born to an Israelite family, the parents were reminded of their roots and the reason for their blessing, and every child was retold the story of the Exodus." Unquote. And from a Christian perspective, the awe-inspiring display of God's almighty wrath on those who destroy his own and then his undeniable care and protection for those who belong to him, well, that's a foreshadowing of Christ's blood shed for us on the cross. At the same time, God triumphed over Satan through the cross. He also redeems his people through the blood of Christ. And What's so cool about the Old Testament is through all of it, we are pointed to Christ. We're all redeemed through his blood. We've been bought for a price, not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. As we conclude this podcast lesson, let's remember again, what was God's purpose in these plagues? He repeated it multiple times, that you may know I am the Lord. None of Egypt's wealth, power, or gods could stop the Lord. I'd like to end with a quote from Christianity.com in response to some who have said, well, COVID-19 is a punishment from God, and they're likening it to the plagues of Egypt. Quote, We don't know why we have this worldwide pandemic, but 
instead of despairing and chalking it up to God's punishment, perhaps we should instead use this as a time to think and pray. What is most important? Is there anyone in our lives with whom we should reconcile? Is there anyone to whom we can show God's love in these trying times? Is there anything in our own relationship with God that we've been putting off dealing with? The quote continues. Times like these remind us how fragile life truly is and how little control we have. They remind us of where eternal life is found and who is in control. We must put our trust in God and follow him. God's people have stood strong through many a storm. Let this be a time that we shine his light to the rest of the world, offering hope in a time of panic. God knows what is happening and what is going to happen, and he loves us enough to die for us. Let us rest in that, unquote. And I think that is the perfect way to end this lesson.